Today's sermon text is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. You can see this in the uh, Pew Bible on page 1540 or in your own device or Bible. Read along with me as we look at God's word today, starting in verse 10. Excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They says, that they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they heard, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, and marries another man, she commits adultery. Here ends today's reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet today, my name is John, and I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. When I asked Matt to come and give an update about how things were going at Grafted, I was tempted to ask him to be our guest preacher for this morning. (laughs) But I figured that would just be cruel to do something like that to him. Actually, back when we did a series in the Sermon on the Mount, I think I gave Matt the passage that was adultery and divorce. So uh, he's (laughs) had to sort of walk this road before. I figured I can't do that to him again twice. Can't do it to him again. As we come to this passage this morning, uh, it is especially important that we stop and ask for God's help. So would you join me in prayer? Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. God, this morning we see 
in this psalmist the beauty and the value of your instruction given to us. And sometimes your instruction says things that are difficult. Sometimes it says things that are confusing. Sometimes it says things that we simply don't want to obey, if we're honest. So God, we ask for your help this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be present among us right now in a unique way, that you would enable us to see and understand what this passage is talking about. We ask that you would help us to see Jesus and that you would cause us to leave here people who are changed and transformed by his mercy and grace poured out on us. So God, be with us now, we pray. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every one of us has been affected by divorce in some way or another. For some of us, we've watched marriages unravel within our family of origin. Maybe your parents or a sibling or maybe your children or even your grandparents. We've watched someone in our family of origin walk through a divorce. Some of us have watched friends, maybe friends you grew up with, friends you went to high school with or went to college with. Maybe you, you know, as you follow people on social media, you see people's lives unraveling through things like divorce. Maybe you've watched people like coworkers or neighbors or maybe the parents of other kids at your school walk through a divorce. Some of us sitting here today have experienced the pain and disorientation of divorce firsthand. And all of the hurt and all of the stinging words and all of those painful memories are seared into your minds. Maybe you're here today and you live with the guilt of getting a divorce before you came to know Jesus. And you look back and you wonder, could it have been different? If I was the person then that I am now, how could that relationship maybe have been different? Maybe you're here today and you are actively planning a divorce. Or you're sort of toying with it or putting your toes in the water and you're making your list of pros and cons and if I do this or if I do this and here's all the benefits, here's all the negatives and you're sort of stepping into that world. Maybe you're here today and you live with both the disappointment of a marriage that is not what you hoped it would be and the conflicting feelings of wishing that you were divorced. Maybe you look at your situation and you say, this is not how I expected my marriage to turn out. <laughs> this is not the kind of marriage I want to have. I know I shouldn't divorce. I know I'm not going to because I know it's against what God desires for me. And yet, man, there's so much in my life that might be better or different if I were to get a divorce from this person. And so you find yourself living with those conflicting feelings. Maybe you are walking through the daily complexity of life in a blended family that exists because divorce or divorces have taken place. Every single one of us has experienced divorce in one way or another, and some of us can identify with maybe three or four, maybe more of those things that I just listed. I'm well aware that talking about divorce is sort of like walking through a minefield. 
because of all the emotions and because of all of our life experiences and because of our, you know, potentially differing convictions on certain things, this is a difficult thing to talk about. And it's especially hard, too, because I see faces. And when I think about divorce, I think about the people in our church family who I know have experienced the difficult pain of divorce. And so this is not some, like, distant, you know, like, cold theological category type thing. There's real people that are involved in this. And this is like our life experiences. And so it's just a really hard thing to think about, but it's in the text. It's in the passage. And because we believe that everything God says to us about divorce in his word is for our good and for our flourishing, we're going to step into this this morning. It would take a whole series of messages to cover the subject of divorce and remarriage. And obviously, we only have a few moments this morning. So what I can promise you is that you are all going to leave here today with questions. You're going to leave with unanswered questions. And uh, I'll be transparent with you. I don't feel bad about that. Uh, For a few reasons. Number one, because I don't know everything, nor am I a vending machine for Bible answers. And number two, because that leaves you with something to go explore with God. Something for you to go read about and to think about and to process and to pray and to talk with other people about. I can point you to some helpful resources if you'd like, um, but just know that this morning we will not be able to cover everything that you would like to have covered. But what I do want to accomplish this morning is I want to look at this passage and sketch a framework for how to think about divorce. In order for us to think well about divorce, we have to see three things. The first thing is God's created design for marriage. That's the place we have to start, is by seeing God's created design for marriage. In this passage that you heard read, once again we see Jesus, he's traveling around and he's teaching crowds as he so often does. And as he's teaching crowds on the east side of the Jordan River in the region of Perea, he's approached by the Pharisees who, as they often do, approach him asking questions to try and trap him or asking questions to try and trip him up or to test him. And so they come to him and they ask this question that raises a subject that has not yet come up so far in the book of Mark, and that is the subject of divorce. And they come to him and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? As is so often the case, there is a question under the question here. The question that they're really asking is, under what circumstances is it lawful for someone to divorce their wife? Matthew's retelling of these same events makes this explicit, where Matthew records them coming to Jesus and saying, is it lawful to divorce, uh, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So what they're fishing for is they're fishing for uh, the answer to what was a widespread debate in the first century world, and that is, What are the legitimate legal grounds for divorce? That's what they're asking for. There was two rabbinic schools of thought in the first century world. There was one school of thought, the school of Shammai, that was much more conservative. And so the Shammai tradition taught that the only legitimate grounds for divorce would be adultery or some form of marital unfaithfulness. Everything else besides that is out of bounds for legal Uh, grounds for divorce. There was another school, the school of Hillel, that was much more, uh, you could say, permissive. And so they would allow divorce for lots of different reasons, 
up to and including things like burning a meal, which you may think uh, sounds crazy, and it's because it is. Uh, but I'm not making that up. This isn't like, you know, hyperbole on my part. You can actually read first century rabbinic literature where they talk about this being one of the things that would be considered a legitimate legal grounds for divorce was, yeah, she did something like burn a meal. And so, yeah, you can just divorce her. And so this, this was one of the, the views of divorce. So there's the conservative view that's, you know, adultery only. There's the other side that's more permissive that could include up to including just about anything. And this permissive view was the dominant view in the Jewish world of the first century. Most Jewish people, including probably Jesus' own disciples, for all we know, came to be followers of Jesus with this very loose and easy and fast view of divorce. That just about anything could be cited as a grounds for a legal divorce. So this is what they're asking Jesus, is that they're, they're trying to pin him to sort of push him into a corner. They're trying to box him into one of these two categories, saying, are you of Shammai or are you of Hillel? They're asking what he thinks about this. So they came asking that question, and Jesus, as he very often does, he responded not with an answer, but he responded with a question. And so he says to them in verse 3, what did Moses command you? They said in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So their answer about writing a certificate of divorce and sending her away, their answer is rooted in an Old Testament, a a passage from the Hebrew Bible in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Not going to take the time to read that this morning, but you can go read that sometime on your own if you would like. Uh, But this is the passage in the Hebrew Bible that gives instruction for what to do about divorce. And so uh, it's understandable that they would go here. And in fact, you know, in in a way, like it, it makes sense that they would go to that passage because they're talking about divorce. But what Jesus, how Jesus responds to them here uh, indicates that they went to the wrong passage in order to think about divorce well. They went to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So he said, go back to the Moses. What did Moses say? They went back to Moses, but not back far enough. They went back to Deuteronomy and Jesus says, you went to the wrong passage. You should have gone to Genesis 1 and 2. And so he takes them to Genesis 1 and 2 because that gives us God's design for marriage in the first place. So Jesus says in verse 5, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law meaning Deuteronomy 24. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees' understanding of divorce had been formed by a passage in the Hebrew Bible that gave a concession about marriage. And what Jesus is saying to them is he's telling them that their understanding of divorce needs to be formed instead by the passage that shows God's design for marriage in the first place. Does that make sense? They went to Deuteronomy 24 saying, well, this talks about divorce. And Jesus is like, that's not the place to start talking about divorce. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and see God's design for marriage in the first place. And he says, God created them, male and female. 
in God's wisdom, he created human beings in his likeness and in his image with inherent dignity and value and worth and honor. And he created human beings as these distinct yet complementary genders of male and female. Male and female are not the same, and yet we need one another. We complement one another in so many ways. And this is a part of God's wisdom in how he created us, was male and female. And then Jesus goes on to say that when a male and a female come together in a marriage relationship, what happens is they form a one-flesh-type union. And he goes to Genesis in order to say that the relationship that is formed when a male and a female come together in marriage, it's not a merely contractual arrangement, although there may be contractual aspects to a marriage. It is a covenant relationship where a male and a female come together in a lifelong covenant of marriage where they enter into this unique and beautiful kind of one flesh union, this one flesh relationship. And he highlights the uniqueness and the beauty of this one flesh relationship by saying that they are one, or saying something similar to that, four times in a row. So notice what he says. He says in verse 7, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So it's almost like a, you know, sandwich that he's created here. They're united, they're joined together, and sandwiched in the middle is there's this one flesh thing. And so Jesus is just belaboring the point about how in God's design, a male and a female come together in a marriage relationship and they form this unique kind of one flesh relationship. And Jesus is saying, this is God's design in the first place for marriage. To come at this from a different angle, divorce is not a part of God's design for our lives or relationships. It's not. Divorce is not a part of God's design for our relationships. And he corrects the Pharisees because their entire understanding of divorce was based on the wrong passage. It was based on a concession rather than based on God's design for marriage in the first place. So we have to begin by seeing God's created design for marriage and seeing that divorce is not a part of God's good design. And we also have to see God's accommodating mercy in divorce. God's accommodating mercy in divorce. When the Pharisees quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 24, Jesus responded in verse 5 by saying, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that these instructions in Deuteronomy 24 are not providing us with something we should aspire to. These instructions are not giving us the way that things ought to be. They're not giving us the way that things should be. They're not providing us with a standard or an ideal of any kind. What these instructions in Deuteronomy do is they give us a glimpse of God's mercy in that he stepped in to manage the fallout of shattered human relationships. That's what Deuteronomy 24 shows us. 
God knew that the corrupting power of sin at work in human relationships would lead to divorce. God knew that when you take a man and a woman, both of whom are deeply corrupted by sin to the very core of their being, when you take a man and a woman and you put them together in this one flesh type relationship where there's a kind of intimacy that they experience that cannot be experienced in any other kind of relationship, when you put them together in the context of marriage and they share intimately all of life, including their own bodies, when you put a man and a woman in that kind of situation, God knew that divorce could be the result of that. In fact, this is, uh, we don't see divorce in Genesis 3, but we see what happens when a one flesh union is infiltrated by sin. We see in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And immediately, they start blame shifting, and he's like, well, it was the woman you gave me. And she's like, well, it was the snake. And they start blame shifting, and they start hiding from God and hiding from one another. And all of a sudden, this one flesh union that they had before has been totally changed And they never experienced it the way that it was before. God knew that the corrupting power of sin at work in the human heart and in human relationships would lead to divorce. So he gave instruction that managed the social and the relational and the economic fallout of a divorce that had already taken place. That's what Deuteronomy 24 does. Deuteronomy 24 doesn't command that a husband divorces his wife, Deuteronomy 24 simply acknowledges that a divorce has taken place and it makes provision so that the woman who was the most vulnerable person in that situation was not taken advantage of and that she was cared for and that she was, had some legal protection. That's what Deuteronomy 24 does. It assumes a divorce has already taken place and it shows God's mercy in that he steps in to say, okay, if I don't give these instructions, these men could take advantage of these women and I won't have it. And so God stepped in with his accommodating mercy to protect the woman who was in a vulnerable position. Even though divorce is not a part of God's design, And even though divorce is always, as Jesus says, the result of sin and hardness of heart, in some, not saying that it's always equal on both sides, but divorce is always the result of the hardness of the human heart. It's always the result of sin in some way or another. And even so, God extended his accommodating mercy to limit the damage that he knew divorce could do. So this is the second thing we got to see as we try and think well about divorce. The first is we have to see God's created design for marriage. We have to see God's accommodating mercy in divorce. And the place that we have to land today is we have to land by seeing God's unceasing faithfulness when our relationships fail. God's unceasing faithfulness when our relationships fail to be what they are supposed to be. The difficult reality is that as hard as we may try, and for all of our best intentions, there isn't always going to be a happy ending. 
There isn't always going to be a story of redemption. There's not always going to be a story of reconciliation, right? Where it's like, they hated each other and their family was a mess and they had, you know, one of them had moved out and things were awful and then now they're back and they're better than they were before and everything is wonderful and God does that sometimes, to be sure. And we live in the midst of a world that is marked and tainted by sin. And so there won't always be the happy ending to the story. There won't always be reconciliation or redemption. Jesus' teaching on divorce is complex and difficult enough on its own. And then you get this interaction with his disciples in the house later where they're like, Jesus, can you give us a little bit more? Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by all this divorce stuff? And Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Whatever Jesus is saying in these verses, and there's like legitimate scholarly debate about how do we understand that? How do we interpret what Jesus is saying here? Whatever is in those verses, whatever these verses mean, what they do, if nothing else, is they highlight the seriousness of divorce. And so the question is, well, what do we do? Okay, we see God's design for marriage. This is what marriage is supposed to be and is supposed to be like. And then we see the seriousness of divorce all throughout this passage. But then we live in a broken world. And it's like, what are we supposed to do? What do we do when our relationships fail? What do we do when there isn't the redemption story? What do we do when there isn't the happy ending that we hope there is? And the answer is, we trust in God's unceasing faithfulness. Jesus' words here are not designed to lay a heavy weight of guilt or shame on those who fail at marriage. Okay, Jesus' words here are not designed to be this just anchor around your neck that weighs you down because you failed at divorce or you failed in relationships. That's not what Jesus is doing here. We have to hear what Jesus is saying about God's design for marriage and about the seriousness of divorce and about his accommodating mercy. We have to see this in the storyline of the Bible. And as we look at this within the storyline of the Bible, what we see is this. God knows a thing or two about broken covenant relationships. God has been on the receiving end of broken covenant relationships, and so he knows exactly what it's like. When Adam and Eve rebelled against him in the garden, he made a promise. He made a promise to them in the midst of their shattered marriage that was never the same after that point. He made a promise to them. I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. Yes, your, your marriage is never going to be the same but I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to undo the devastation that's been unleashed into your life and into your marriage through sin. I'm going to fix it. And so then God made a covenant. He entered into a covenant relationship, first with Abraham, and then with all of Abraham's descendants. 
He entered into this covenant relationship, and this relationship all throughout the Hebrew Bible and even into the New Testament is described using the metaphor of, what do you think? Marriage. Where God is depicted as the husband, and his people, this eclectic ragtag group of men and women who belong to him, are are described using language of this is God's spouse. This is his bride. This is his wife. So God entered into a covenant relationship with us, and we have been unfaithful. The Bible uses language of spiritual adultery to describe what it is that every single one of us have taken part in. Right? We have given our hearts and our affections to other things, to other people besides God. We have looked to other things or to other people to provide for us an ultimate sense of meaning and identity and purpose and safety and security and comfort and all of the good things that God desires for us to experience. We look to his created world to provide those things for us, ultimately, instead of looking to him for those things alone. And the Bible says that that is a kind of spiritual adultery. We have broken the covenant. We have lived unfaithfully. And the Bible uses this language of spiritual adultery. And in the face of all of that continual spiritual adultery, in the face of all of the sin and the idolatry, in the face of our broken relationships and our failure at marriage, in the face of all of that, God has remained faithful to us. God has remained loyal to us. He's not cast us aside. He's not sent us away. God has remained faithful and he has remained loyal to us in the face of our failures. We see his covenant faithfulness and his loyalty to us most clearly expressed at the cross. And when you look at the cross, what you see is the one to whom we have been unfaithful. God himself took on human flesh and gave his life in place of ours so that our sin and our idolatry and our guilt and our shame and our relationship failures could be washed away. He gave his life in place of ours so that we could be washed clean and so that we could be ready, could be fit for life in his presence. The good news is that even if your marriage has failed at some point in your life, even if your marriage one day in the future will fail, even if that's the case, God's love for you is not conditioned on whether you succeed or fail at marriage. God's love for you is not dependent, is not conditioned upon whether you can live up to the ideal that he's given in his design for marriage. Every single one of us, we may fail at marriage. We may fail at relationships. We fail God in all sorts of different ways. And the good news is that his love for us is not conditioned on our obedience alone. And so what this means, this does not mean that we say, well, it doesn't matter if we get divorced then. 
right? We don't go, that's like what, Rome, what Romans 6 is talking about. Well, should we just keep sinning so that God's grace can overflow and abound to us? And Paul's like, are you out of your minds? No. We don't look at marriage and say, well, I guess if God's going to be gracious, it doesn't matter if we're faithful. If God's going to be gracious, I guess, I guess it doesn't matter if I get a divorce or not. That's not true. What it does mean is not that we stop caring about marriage. What it means is when we see God's unceasing faithfulness, it means that we fight even harder for our relationships, specifically our marriages, to reflect God's design. And we do so knowing that even if we fail, his mercy is enough. And so this is how we have to, I believe, approach the subject of divorce is we have to see God's created design for marriage. We have to see God's accommodating mercy in divorce. And we have to see God's unceasing faithfulness when our relationships fail. As we come to the communion table this morning, we get to remember and celebrate the unceasing faithfulness of God given to us in the person of Jesus. And so I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection, and then we will come and celebrate Christ at the table together.